Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turco. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've been listening to Studs, if you learned something, if the conversations have helped to ground you in these unsettling times, let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com studs and show a little love. No pressure, but for as little as a couple bucks, you can help keep studs going strong. Now listen, if you need to take a free ride, I get it. I've been on that train, and I sure don't want to kick you off this one. But if you want to support my project, here's something else you can do. Just take a second. Think about your favorite Studs episode. I don't know, maybe you were charmed by the guest. Or maybe their work intrigued you. Maybe there was just some kind of an X factor in the conversation that somehow left a mark on you. Whatever the case, here's what you do. Think about a person in your life who might dig that conversation. Then, copy the episode link and shoot it right over to them. Tell them there's a funky old dude in Berlin who seeks to magnify the beautiful voices of working people. And on this special season five finale of Studs, we have not one, but two beautiful voices to cherish. Justin Arnett Graham and Nareba Shepard are mainstays of the Chicago food and beverage scene. Despite the always challenging and often toxic terms of their service in the industry, Justin and Nareba thrived. They earned the respect they got in the industry. Then the pandemic hit, decimating much of the industry to which they had unreservedly devoted themselves. COVID challenged Justin and Ariba to see the industry with new eyes. They were forced to grapple with what the industry gives them and what it takes. In the throes of the existential crisis engendered by COVID, Justin and Nariba found themselves in the throes of challenging dialogues with other industry insiders and influencers. And the longer the pandemic dragged on and the more of these conversations they had about the past, the present, and the future of the industry, the more they realized that their conversations warranted a broader audience. And so, like the clever, compassionate, and creative folks they are, they started a podcast. (laughs) They call it Terms of Service. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the terms of working in the service industry. If I could be so bold as to repurpose Mark Twain, the golden gleam of the gilded surface hides beneath it a working class whose humanity is secondary to innovation and profit and glory. Were we enjoying a golden age of gastronomy? Or was it indeed the Gilded Age reprise? Was the glass half empty or half full? It seems to me that depends on whether you're pouring it or drinking it. So fill your cups and join me in conversation with industry guy Justin Arnett Graham and chef Nariba Shepard as we scratch the surface of the gilded idol of the service industry. 
Justin Arnett Graham, Nariba Shepard, welcome to Studs. I have been looking forward to this for quite some time now, and it is a real pleasure to have you here. Hey, let's get it kicked off like this. Can each of you please tell me a little bit about yourself? Just maybe like where you were born, where you were raised, and how you carved your path into the industry. Justin, since I knew you first from way back when you were my student in, I think it was 1974, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's get it started with you. Justin Arnett Graham, where were you born? Where were you raised? And how did you carve your path into the industry? Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. So let's let's start there. So I'm originally from Chicago, born on the on the west side, grew up in a super far northern suburb of Chicago. It's virtually Wisconsin, but specifically around Lake Beach. Went to high school in Grace Lake. I ended up coming to the hospitality industry because I was not satisfied with the craft of journalism. At the time, I believed myself to be a writer. I, I really stand by that craft and I stand by that artistry. However, just the current state of it wasn't for me. And I fell into it like I feel like a lot of people do. Started as a server bartender at OSU, the Ohio State University go-to spot in Columbus, Ohio. It was a very turnkey sort of experience. It was chips and salsa, smothered burritos, just 36 different flavored margaritas. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was it was something that, that really left you always wanting more. If you were curious about what this industry could provide. And I just wanted to learn more about the industry and yeah, made the decision that I wanted to ascend within the hospitality space. And I ended up becoming a beverage director and, you know, a service lead and a Michelin starred captain and all of these things that have really brought me to, to this point to where it's not only the successes that I've shared, but also the experiences that I've had. That's my elevator pitch if we were going up, you know, a couple stories. <laughs> well, let's, let's go up just a couple more stories because I do have to ask, yeah. was there a moment that made you really fall in love with or have a particular affinity for the industry? Yes, oddly enough. There was this gentleman that would come in every Wednesday at the Mexican restaurant that, that I worked at. He asked me, do I know why he comes in? And I said, because I keep your Diet Coke full and you never have to ask me for extra sour cream. And he laughed that off and he's like, no, I hate my job. And the interaction that I have with you is so sincere and so authentic that it helps propel me through the remainder of my week. And I realized from that moment on that hospitality was less of a four-walled construct and more of an emotional connection. I am so glad I asked. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Chef Nariba, give us your story. Where were you born? Where were you raised? And how did you carve your path into the industry? Well, I was born in Trinidad and Tobago, but specifically Trinidad, Port of Spain. I was sort of raised all over the East Coast. Boston, New York, 
New Jersey, went to college at the University of Vermont. Before I even went to college, I told my mom that I wanted to cook. And she said that I should get a degree in something that matters in case one day I break my foot or something. (laughs) And so (laughs) I got a bachelor's of science in human development and family studies. And as soon as I graduated, I started a culinary program. And at the end of that experience and working at a Sodexo kitchen on campus for like a year afterwards, it was a test kitchen for like, farm to table type food. It was amazing. The professor from the program, Chef Jamie, was like, I should go somewhere and do this for real. So I was asked to move to Chicago with my roommate at the time. And within the amount of time it took us to do groceries, I was like, sure, I'll move with you to Chicago. (laughs) So (laughs) I enjoy cooking. But the moment that sort of like, brought it all together for me was crying out of Fridays on Michigan Ave (laughs) about like, how the hell will I get a job here? I don't know anyone. And I was introduced to my friend, Phil, who helped me get into like the fine dining world of food, which I had never like touched before. From there, just sort of spiraled out of control and I ended up working at a bunch of like Michelin star places and developing a problem with alcohol and not sleeping, but really still enjoying what I was doing like an insane person. And, uh, yeah, here I am. (laughs) Yeah. The Stockholm syndrome of the industry, right? Yes. (laughs) Uh, quick question to Reba. Have you broken a foot? I have not broken a foot. However, in the next couple of weeks, I will be using my bachelor's of science in conversations about the food industry. So full circle. Yes. There we go. Splendid. There it is. (laughs) Nariba, I, I hate to do this to you, but I need to start here. I am an Aries. Yes. And so I have two questions for you, Chef. Mm -hmm. How does me being an Aries bode for our discussion today? I think really well. I think that in the Aries world, there is a like a hierarchy. And this is clearly your domain. So like I am respecting that as the other Aries in the room. I learned this because I had a entire line cook staff and we were all Aries. It was like me and three other Aries dudes. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) and the general manager was like, how does this work? And I looked at her and I was like, I am the alpha. This is my kitchen. And they're all having to like submit to this situation. And they were like, yep, that's, that's about right. Minions one and all. And my second question about that (laughs) 
Can you just briefly discuss how astrology fits into the terms of service podcast project? Because you all, <laughs> you like to dive into the astrology, <laughs> and I think it's fun. That is all Nariba. <laughs> I <Yes>. really brought <laughs> it with me. Um, <laughs> I started looking into astrology in college as like a form of statistics. Because like statistically, if you pull enough cards, like, in tarot readings, something is going to matter to you. However, I also forget that I am from the Caribbean and therefore am more magical than other people. And so like, I just kept going with it and being queer is also like a big thing with crystals and astrology. So here I am at 31 doing Reiki after my therapy sessions. And I have <laughs> literally a wall of crystals next to me. So I'm just trying. Mission accomplished. <laughs> and Justin told me like not to stop. So thank you. Yes, I really wanted that to be, you know, an element of you that you brought to the project. And I just can't imagine it any other way. So, yeah. I love how you approach your discussions of astrology with people who aren't totally conversant in or comfortable with talking about astrology, and then you somehow make them immediately comfortable <laughs> talking about their sign. Thank you, and you're welcome. Yes. All right, so I want to talk more about your podcast, mm -hmm. Justin and Nariba. But before we do, I want to get a little bit further into your respective careers. Now, my understanding of it is that, Justin, you're more of like a front-of-house yes. person. Nariba, you're back-of-house. We'll start with you, Justin. Like, How do you describe your work in the industry? What are the different hats that you have worn, the different plates that you have juggled in the industry? Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. uh, well, one thing that I do want to say is that I want to preface this with, I realize that my experience within the industry is not a uh, parallel and it may be considered a paradox as to how it has been. I have never held a support position. I have never held a host position. I have always been in a leadership role. I have been a server. I've been a bartender. I have been a captain. I have also been a beverage director. The reason why I say that is because a lot of people that look like me don't have the same trajectory. And that is something that I would like to change. And I think that it's really important to shed light on it is an anomaly of an experience because I also own a full creative agency because of my time within the industry as well. Mm -hmm. All right. And we're going to get into some of the problematics that you're, yeah. that you're hinting at there. For sure. And, and Nariba, tell us a little bit about the work that you've done in the industry? I started off as like, I was asked to be the supervisor for the Sodexo like test kitchen, but I convinced them to let me cook a couple of days because that's what I wanted to be doing. So I started off just prepping random things. And then when I moved to Chicago, I got more into like line cooking and understanding like Garmanger, is where everyone starts and it really just like puts you through your paces because you have 30 different items that you have to prepare every day 
and you're the first thing that people are getting when they come in to the restaurant. So I started from the bottom of that like line chain and worked every single position in every restaurant that I've worked in, like going through the hotline, cold stuff, prep, desserts um, and pastry, which is not my jam. And I realized that, like, <laughs> I did not mean that. <laughs> but <laughs> I we was like, sort of well, well, <laughs> yeah, um, we're like, mm, <laughs> well played. For me, I think, yes, I feel like I also, in a way, had a very different path than a lot of people, like specifically being a woman and a woman of color, I feel like I was able to move through the ranks like pretty smoothly for the most part. And that's not true of a lot of other people's experiences in the industry. Right. However, I will say that what I want to do and what I'm hoping that we're doing with our podcast is showing that you don't have to sort of be hazed in order to make it to the end or the top of this industry. It seems to me like both of you are very humble in your recognition that your stories are outliers. You're both people of color and you both fully recognize that your path is sort of aberrant. Mm -hmm right? That you all are very much the exceptions to the rule. And I think you both in the podcast show a lot of gratitude for that. But it's, I think more than that, you see that that's a problem. And it seems to me like the podcast seeks to give some language to the problem, right? Yeah. 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 So let's talk about the podcast. Other than your well-earned frustrations with the industry. Maybe you could tell us the genesis story of the Terms of Service podcast. Like, how did it all begin? Justin. Well, (laughs) (laughs) well, I will uh, handle the start of that. So last year, here in Chicago when bars and restaurants had to close, um, you know, to help flatten the curve, uh, stop the spread. I saw that online there was just a, such a significant influx of like GoFundMes, you know, and I'm not talking about GoFundMes coming from mom and pop shops, which is something that you would expect, uh, you know, your favorite neighborhood spot, you know, it's really terrifying for them to not be able to make any revenue for two months or one month, yeah, you know, or hell, one week. But also you would see these larger groups and organizations also be sending out these GoFundMes asking for public support. And what I kept thinking about is that this is overwhelming. How the hell do you navigate this? And also, how do you track the financial support? You know, we we see these organizations that, you know, have raised like $750,000 to support their staff. But then when you come to find out, it's just like it's because they want to keep corporate individuals on on a payroll. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty stark 
comparison from like you thinking that you're supporting your local bartender, your local server, your local chef and your local business owner, but you have, you know, some of that money that's going into a corporate infrastructure that does not give a damn about the labor force. And so I say all of that to say that we, we wanted to create some content that was focused on education from those not within the industry. And also we wanted to provide a platform for those that were within the industry to feel like someone gave a shit Yeah, because no one was asking the industry how they were feeling at such an unprecedented time. And that is where Six Feet Apart was born. I actually met Nariba from that shoot. I was connected to her from a mutual friend of ours Ursula Psycho. Ursula. Hi, Ursula. She's absolutely amazing. Yes. <laughs> and the industry felt like they had ears to share their, their stories to. It was an emotional conversation. It was meant to show people everywhere that like, these are your neighbors. These, this is not a faceless industry. Yeah. It's like these people make up the culture of your communities. Six feet apart, was really the jumping off point for terms of service. What is six feet apart? Help me out. Yeah, so six feet apart was literally an industry narrative that allowed for the industry to be heard and also the community to connect with their local hospitality professionals just through just through them sharing their story. And we realized since six feet apart was successful, We wanted to keep that intention going, but we realized again that the bandwidth was, it was too long. Like the runway was too long. It just, it took so many moving parts. Mm -hmm. So we repackaged the intentionality of Six Feet Apart into a podcast format, which is now Terms of Service. Mm -hmm. So that means that you and Nariba met within a couple months of the Terms of Service podcast starting. Is that the case? Yeah. Because it seems like y'all have been friends for decades. Yeah. Is that industry life, baby? Oh, <laughs> is that industry life, baby? That's right. That's right. Is that camaraderie? Trauma bonding. Trauma bonding. <laughs> Trauma bonding, yes. I mean, there really is a bona fide connection between the two of you. There's a warmth mm. that you all share with each other. I'm quite surprised to learn that you're kind of new friends. Thanks. Yeah, our one year anniversary was like a hot second ago. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, it's... Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> pretty cute. Yes. Happy friend anniversary. Yes, yeah. friend anniversary. I like, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so... If I'm hearing you right, the genesis story of Terms of Service was the overwhelming frustration that you had around the discussion of the COVID shutdowns and what you perceive to be, quite rightly, I imagine, the failure of an appropriate community response and the failure of useful dialogue about the real problems that real people were facing. Is that what I'm getting from you? Oh, yeah, 110%. Yeah, absolutely. So you named your podcast Terms of Service. Yes. I've listened to, I think, all of the episodes but one. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me 
that it's actually a really clever name. Thank you. <laughs> There's a there there. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if I'm right, but I'm not going to hypothesize. I want to listen to you. Can you talk about the title of your podcast, Terms of Service, and what that title means to you? I, I wanted a double entendre. I wanted something that people were already familiar with. Once you enter really any any environment, but specifically within the the hospitality space, you know, you're agreeing to be a part of what that ecosystem entails. So terms of service, real industry, real talk, no bullshit. Mm-hmm. That whole statement just feels authentic and relevant because when you're literally hitting consent forms all the time, mm-hmm. you know, you're agreeing to a terms of service, but you always overlook it. Yep. And that is where it came from. Something that you're not essentially overlooking any longer. We can't. You cannot and you shan't not. <laughs> so, <laughs> nope. Shan't. You shan't. You shan't <laughs> overlook the terms of service. Can I push yes. into the title a little bit? And can you tell me if I'm... Because yeah. I was I was jogging the other day <laughs> and I was actually kind of meditating on the title of your podcast. And I had this thought that the terms of service for those who work in the industry are very much skewed against the worker. Mm-hmm. Like the terms are that you have to wear exhaustion as a badge of honor. Absolutely. That the terms of service are such that you have to mm-hmm. suffer from sexual harassment and worse. I was talking to a friend about your podcast and she was sharing a story with me when she was working in DC as a cocktail server and she was getting proposition left and right, including by the proprietor of this haughty martini establishment in DC. And that's sort of the terms of service. Like you just sort of have to expect that you're going to have to put up with grotesquerie. Harassment. Absolutely. Yeah. And the terms of service are that you have to grapple with drug and alcohol abuse among coworkers and among clients. Part of being in the industry is that you have to interface with people who are struggling with real addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it quietly and oftentimes with a smile and that all of these things and others add up to this exhausting harassing drug and alcohol fueled industry that people are nevertheless very proud of participating in mm-hmm. <laughs> do you remember that beauty and the beast situation where she's like living with this horrible dude and everyone's like it's gonna get better like he's gonna get better just like stick with him and it'll be great Mm -hmm. that's what it's sort of like working in the food service industry you just keep dealing with it because sometimes this beast is like pretty dope and you like learn a lot and you get to like go places and do things but on the downside he has to like lock you up every now and then (laughs) you know and like your only friends are like the dishwasher and like the general manager on a Saturday night like those are your friends now yeah I look at it as like a Stockholm syndrome situation. Yeah. What is it about 
the industry that keeps smart, hardworking, good people coming back for more, despite the terms of service that are turned against them? You can be surrounded by some of the best people and, you know, they may not be the the best according to others, but they could be the best for you. Mm-hmm. That's what has always anchored me in, in the industry is because I have got to work and align with just some of the best people. I have learned so much from just so many different walks of life. It's you get to work with literally anybody. Yeah. It does not matter if you have a master's of whatever, or you're just like this scrappy individual that has been climbing the ladder. And I feel like there's really something special. That's what I think a lot of people come into the industry and they, and they stay and they, you know, they, they trade certain elements of their wellness just so that they can have that camaraderie and that, family sort of environment so I feel like we're like same same different in the sense (laughs) that like you have like that front of house like spin on it (laughs) and I'm back here like I've literally like worked with dudes who have been dishwashers for 20 years and they know how to fully cook and they work a second job as a line cook in the somewhere else somewhere else right and like you know that's not what they want to do their whole lives but that's what is available to them. That's like the other half of that. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it's unlimited and you can go anywhere. And we've had the opportunity to do that. But we've also worked with people who have never been granted the opportunity to do that. Ever. And I feel like that's as important in this industry. Exactly. As people trying to like elevate themselves. I mean, it seems to me that part of what you two strive to do in the terms of service conversation is to embody the great Chicago tradition of muckraking journalists, (laughs) right? Like you're seeking to shine a light on what is often the dark underbelly of an industry which is very gilded, Right. But all that glitters is not gold. And underneath that thin veneer Correct. of shiny service mm-hmm. that you might see at the front of the house, yeah, Justin maybe gets to see a little bit more, you have exploitation and harassment and some like real, like ethno religious and racial issues that are at the core of what you all discuss in your podcast. Can I ask you to be really explicit about what your goals are for a terms of service conversation? Of course. Terms of service is a direct response to media coverage of the hospitality industry. We, as being a part of the industry, know that a lot of placement is dictated by PR strategy, by PR companies. Mm -hmm. Um, If you let some of the publications here in Chicago specifically tell you, there is only one notable black chef on the South side. Uh, There is a multi-million dollar restaurant. You know, they have to be delayed. So there's multiple features that talks about that. Um, There are also publications that have 
been explicitly complicit in, you know, some toxic Michelin behavior that has been damaging to a multitude of of people, groups, interests, but yet they want to, you know, draw up a feature that, you know, exposes them after the fact because they're no longer on the payroll. And exactly. And I think that it's extremely important for for terms of service to be a sounding board for real people to talk about their real experiences in this very real industry. Mm-hmm. And and my my goal for this is to have terms of service be really like an aspirational and inspirational platform for people to to feel as if it's okay to expect more it's okay to challenge more it's okay yeah. to have those difficult conversations because that that can empower your evolution and the trajectory of of this industry the industry is the way that it is because no one has said shit for so fucking long yeah Agreed. <laughs> what Justin said. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's just how I feel. Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate your sentiment and I'm totally supportive of where you're coming from. Having listened to most of the episodes of your podcast, it's clear to me that your goals for a term as a service conversation are indeed noble. And I'd also say that you bring out the best in your guests. You you provide for them a safe but a challenging space. You're really good at connecting with guests really quickly. Both of you are really well connected in the industry. I assume you have a palette of guests from which to choose. How do you select guests? Who's been on the show and why did you pick them? We know a lot of people. Justin, our producer Max and I were like, this is the information we know about this person. And then we decide whether or not it's like someone who is able to come in and talk about things that might be a little bit difficult, especially if they were like part of the problem. That has to be a thing that they're willing to do. Um, We also don't like it to be a situation where anyone is going to feel attacked. If I feel like I have had to be accountable for myself and a lot of like the shitty things that I have done. So like if I'm holding myself accountable, I expect other people to hold themselves accountable. We want it to be a spectrum of a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. So what one group of people may may connect with on one episode, they may not connect with on a following episode. A perfect example of this is the idea of money management in this industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In one of our earlier episodes, we sat down with a former industry veteran. Um, Rakita Webb. Rakita Webb, what's up? What's happening, girl? She's great. We love her. A lot of people may feel like a conversation like that is one, boring, two, daunting, because the industry as a whole, it's shocking when people seem to be able to, you know, like buy a house. <laughs> you know, like do, that's what I'm saying. And it's like you may not be ready for for that step, but it's important for you to be able to know that there's a conversation that is developed around your reality, yeah. which is the reality that we all share. 
when you're getting tipped out X amount of money every single evening, or you're from a back of house perspective, you have to budget X amount of money. So therefore you can hit some sort of goals. It's the idea that you're worthy of attaining a goal in the first damn place. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what people in the industry simply haven't thought about. I don't want to say no one has. I can only speak from my reality. Yeah. I never thought that me being in the industry, I would be able to have certain things. And I thought that that was the trade-in that I would have to agree upon while working in the industry. And that's simply not true. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you found some space to enjoy some of the fruits of your labor Y'all are about 10 episodes in. You've had someone from the wine side. You've had a Michelin star <laughs> chef. You got the cake zaddy. Yeah. You, ma- ma- yeah. you, you got the money management person. You had on the sex worker mm-hmm. um, who had some roots in the industry. You know, they were talking about sort of the metamorphosis of their career. Mm-hmm. You've had a broad range of guests. Thank you. In. 10 episodes. The the palette is really interesting. Your choices are really interesting. So you're 10 episodes in, and I know everybody loves all of their babies equally, but can each of you share one episode that you feel really embodies your aspirations for the Terms of Service podcast? And then maybe like tell me how that particular episode really illustrates the Terms of Service mission. Nariba. Nariba, you want to start it off? I mean, (laughs) yes, I'm down. So my favorite episode is... uh, Zero zero one with Joey, the accountability advisor. Yes, yeah, the accountability advisor. Flavor supreme. Flavors. <laughs> Flavor supreme. One hundred and ten percent all day. For me, that was like sort of why I was interested in doing terms of service. Who is Joey Fam? Joey Fam is a Flavor Supreme, aka Cake Zaddy Extraordinaire. Also, one of my like coworkers these days. They were like the beginning of the conversation of like problematic white male chef behavior in the industry. And like as a person of color and as an immigrant, I have watched people do all these things to food. They're just like taking parts of other people's cultures and making it like something new or mainstream (laughs) when like it's been around for hundreds of years it's like just like leave the thing as it is i get it we're all about innovation but it's like too but they can't not do it and it's like (laughs) but they can't not do it and like when literal people of color who make the food traditionally they're telling you one it's not that thing yeah two like you shouldn't be doing this because you're legitimately like making a half-assed version of something that you can pay a third of the price for on the South side and get more of it and it be authentic. And you don't like do anything to give back to those communities. Right. And it was like the first time someone said it out loud and like other people supported them. And that's because of COVID. 
like we had nothing to lose before we had everything to lose. Exactly. What that taught me is like, we shouldn't want to have to wait for the carpet to be pulled out of underneath you so that you can like have something to say. Yeah. And you should like say something when you see it happening. And like, I mean, yes, I had the ability to do that, but people didn't like it when I did it at these like fine dining institutions, they'd be like, why are you taking it so seriously? When all they do is take it so seriously. (laughs) I'm like, bro, I literally just watched you like shape an asparagus that already looks like a spear into a spear for like a dish. Don't talk to me about like taking things seriously. So I have to tell (laughs) you, I was totally enthralled by Joey Pham. I'm so glad that you brought up their episode because I don't know where you found Flavor Supreme, but Joey Pham is a tour de force. Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting, and I don't want to dive like too far into like these discussions of cultural appropriation. Joey Pham tells the story of given a nice gut punch to the folks over at, uh, is it called Fat Rice? Indeed. It is indeed called Fat Rice. And part of it was a gut punch to the dude who was culturally appropriating their culture's food. But part of it was like a gut punch to the power structure that Joey quite rightly calls out. Mm -hmm. Joey's getting combative. Mm -hmm. They're punching up, punching back, and seemingly punching in the right places because there was a quite a kerfuffle over all of that, right? <laughs> yes. But here's what really stood out to me the most, because the first hour you spend with Joey isn't about that. You sort of tack that on to the end. Mm-hmm. What you really wanted to talk with Joey about is like how to maintain your dignity and your sense of self-worth and how to maintain the better angel of your nature when working in environments that can be really destructive. Absolutely. I mean, I think about that part of the conversation every day. We talk about it once a week when we have our like meetings about Snack It, which is what Joey asked me to be a part of. It's an online bodega with a collective of chefs and bartenders or just individuals in general who have a lot to offer in the industry. And we just like sell things via this online platform in the alternative economy. Amazing. So that we can keep our own hours and, you know, like structurally do what feels right for us. And we're putting ourselves first, our structures around like, if you can't do pickup or delivery on this set day, then like, you know, like Joey said, maybe our services aren't for you. Yeah. You have to like create your boundaries. And for me, I think that's my favorite episode in the sense that like, I learned so much about like things that I already thought should be feasible and viable in the food service industry. Like you're having a shitty day, take a mental health day. Yes. Just let me know because like you coming in and not being a hundred percent is going to feed into everyone else and the food. And that like is part of the guest experience. And we don't need that. Also, I need you to like be a full human being. That'd be dope. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that would be dope. Reba, I need to ask you this though. Like, you kind of cop to this a little bit in that episode and Joey cops do it a bit too. 
I've worked in kitchens, and what I recall is a really combative environment. Mm-hmm. It's combative language. Mm-hmm. Right. And Joey brings this up. While gracious with themselves, Joey recognizes that, like, there's been some sharp tongue moments. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of working through that. Mm-hmm. I guess I do want to ask you, though, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. Nariba, the stresses of the kitchen and the inclement environment that's created in kitchens. I'm sure you have been both the recipient and the deliverer. Oh, yes. Of some <laughs> unbecoming language and expectations. And that's kind of part of the terms of service Mm -hmm. of working in the kitchen. Can you talk about what you've learned about working in the kitchen and maybe how to make it more of a space for everyone to participate in comfortably? Yes. Okay. So when I became an executive chef, I confidently felt like I was not ready to do it. I had like this whole 10 year plan and it was happening like three years sooner than scheduled. So I was just like, you know, fake it till you make it type situation. Mm -hmm. And I knew already what I like didn't want to see happening in a kitchen, but I was already put in a situation where I was understaffed. And where I was located was too far out of the city to guarantee that, like, the people who'd be applying for jobs weren't necessarily, like, the same level of, like, I'm willing to be studious for my job as, like, fine dining downtown. Mm -hmm. So I found myself very short with people. I knew that I needed mental health days and I wasn't taking them. And I feel like I was unhappy and that reflected in the kitchen. I did catch a lot of those moments and I was able to like talk to people about it. But by the end of it, I realized part of the reason that I was leaving that space was because I wasn't happy. And I think a lot of the time we get in those harsh environments with other chefs and coworkers because they're not happy and they don't know how to like not bring that into work. Yes. So that's my main thing of like, now it's my job as a human being to realize that like, if something isn't working, then I shouldn't try to force it to work because you're only hurting everyone involved. Yeah. And that's what, like, I try to move into, like, every working dynamic. If we can't be happy with what we're doing and we're turning against each other instead of, like, working with each other, then maybe we should, like, be reworking or looking at a different way to handle the situation. I also think that it's really important to acknowledge that these things are a journey, yeah, you know, and it, it's really important to you can miss that, but you have to be able to acknowledge that that you missed that. And I think that that's great. Yeah, and sometimes it takes longer to figure out yeah. if you were misstepping or not. But yeah, yeah, 
or if you were just tripping. Tripping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, do either of you carry shame as a result of tripping out on a coworker or a colleague? Have either of you been rude, mean, sharp tongued, dismissive in ways that like you really trying to still kind of grapple with and find peace around? Oh, 110%. And some of those I'm like, nope, I would do it again in a heartbeat because (laughs) (laughs) like you haven't lived life until you've been in the same job and two separate men have said to you, wouldn't you do better to just quit your job and be on uh, unemployment? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to tell a motherfucker off. Exactly. And it's like, that's that's the thing. (laughs) But the same way that like men have been flippant with me about things, I never really got the luxury to do that. Mm. Yeah. Because if you say anything, then you're over emotional and you're being a bitch and like all this stuff. So for me, like, the harshness and dismissive things and stuff like that happened to me more so than to other people. And I think the things that I feel shame around is not necessarily those moments, but it's the moments where like, I was a part of other people being horrible to other people. Mm. Like not saying the things that I should have said those sort of things. Those are the things that I hold shame around. I'm not ashamed of anything that I said in particular, but I hold shame in what I didn't say. Yeah. No, I totally identify with that. In fact, the last time I was in Chicago, pre-COVID, I happened to run into a woman with whom I worked at a steakhouse Mm -hmm. in 1997, 97, 98. And that place was ravaged with misappropriated sexual energy from the top to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And I was 20 years old, 21 years old. You know, I literally just that semester had taken a gender studies class and I later created and taught a gender studies class for years. So I, I, I knew better. You know, it was in the culture of this restaurant. And I watched, uh, it wasn't just her, you know, but, but her in particular. And I saw her at a mall. I was with my daughter and I saw her at a mall and I saw, saw from a distance. And I had hoped one day I'd run into her. And I was like, dude, we bullshitted for three minutes. And I'm like, listen, I just got to tell you this. I'm real sorry. I didn't say anything. Mm. And that's a form of participation. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and what's so fucked up about it is that it was so normal. And it was like that at every food service industry gig I ever worked. It was like that at Dairy Queen. It was like that at the pizza place. It was like that at this steakhouse. It was sure as shit like that at the bar I worked at. Mm -hmm. And, um, I can pat myself on the back and say I never participated. I wasn't courageous enough to say anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the reason, actually, I started that gender studies class and tried to create a, a language around this is because the guilt and the shame I have not saying much. Got to work my way through it, you know. It do, in fact, be that way sometimes. When someone acknowledges that, like, you know, 
I didn't participate in this, but I'm sorry that I didn't say anything. And that's how I feel my growth is as well. Like there's the actively shitty people. And then there's like the people who are just there and they witness it. And 10 years later, we decide we should have said something. Right. Yeah. That's why right now we're out here being like, we are saying something. Yes. Hard stop. Every two weeks on Thursdays, we're saying stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and people are listening. Yeah. People yeah. are listening. Yeah. As they should be. Yeah. Nariba, I'm totally into the Joey Fam episode, probably for the same reasons you are. Like there was just a vulnerability to it and there was a kindness to it. And there was like a therapeutic quality to it. And I would be curious, Justin Arnett Graham. Mm-hmm. Hi. <laughs> your favorite episode of your favorite podcast, Terms of Service. <laughs> well, since I have to choose one because I obviously enjoy all of them, uh, I would have to say the undocumented experience with Alan Mata's Green. Yes. It was just really, really powerful, transparent, and also extremely vulnerable. Look at the support staff. Look at who is in the dish pit. Who's a part of the prep team. There's a stark difference. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a deeper reality. Yeah. I love that episode. Can you give us the snapshot of the Alon story? Yes. So we connected with Alon during the Six Feet Apart project. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had met prior when he was working at a well-regarded restaurant here here in Chicago. And he is an undocumented worker from Mexico. He is committed to helping increase the visibility of those realities while also transitioning out of the industry to focus on social work, to be a resource to his community as well. Mm-hmm. Like I could listen to that episode on repeat Probably for forever. <laughs> I really, I, I really could. I really could. Yeah, it's a great one. You know who needs to listen to that episode? Everyone who has some fool belief <laughs> about how immigrants are hurting America and how we have to put up walls and you know shut gates. Like, right. you know, he tells this story of he was you know like twelve years old or whatever, and he had to take one of his dad's shifts. Like his dad wasn't doing well; he was suffering from some stuff. Yeah, And so he showed up at his dad's job to be the dishwasher when he was like 12 mm-hmm. years old, you know, and he's been hustling day after day, year after year in challenging work environments and is finding his way doing a master's in social work. And like he's doing it and he's doing it and he's so committed. And yet he has to like butt up against problems with DACA and mm-hmm. four years of the previous presidency, which really challenged his you know capacity to feel comfortable mm-hmm. in the country yeah yeah and i really believe that just being able to provide a space to share that reality is even more impactful who's asking those questions who is asking it so directly to someone who is living it day in and day out yeah 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 and the reason that no one's asking it is because no one no one gave a shit before. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Like that was the episode of your podcast that I heard where I'm like, oh, these two are really on to something. Thank you. Like they're really magnifying a voice that can change the way people think about the nature of work in the industry, but also the nature of the immigrant experience. Like, yeah, dude brought me to tears. You all were so kind with him and you really, you you emboldened him to tell his story. It's not just that you gave him a microphone. It's that you asked the right questions and that you created this supportive environment and he really thrived in that. Yeah, congrats on that episode. I I love it too. Mm, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Although I will say, I hope I don't regret doing this. But <laughs> one of the tiny little things that I loved about that episode is the discussion of code switching, which has been <laughs> a, a fascination of mine. Um, and uh, Nareeba, I'm not going to make you do it. But you, uh, oh no, you- I 110% can, <laughs> but it's like, so like people think that that's my code switching going back and forth between a Trini accent and an American accent or whatever, but <laughs> the real code switching is my ability to work in a fine dining kitchen and have sailor talk conversation with these dude bros and then walk out to a table and drop a dish down and be able to explain the region that this dish is from, the purveyors that we get the seafood. Like, that is the true code switching. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Hey, the main reason I should confess here that I wanted to get the two of you onto the Studs podcast other than that, I just really like both of you and you've kind of been living in my ears for a while. So I just wanted to have a chance to talk with you. <laughs> but like the main reason I really wanted to have you on is because, look, this podcast that I host is a podcast that seeks to to celebrate, to explore and to honor working. And you all have been hustling. You've been working real hard in and outside of the industry And now you have this podcast about working in the industry. And what I'd like to know is now that you're 10 episodes in, what lessons have you learned from your explorations on your podcast about working in the industry? Well. Yeah, Justin. You go. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah. Well, okay. Um, what I've really learned is how intertwined we all are. Through terms of service, I have been able to find myself through the stories of so many, which was something that I wasn't really expecting. It has really amplified my, my worldview, like my macro vision of what it's like to empathize with you know my my contributors my my colleagues terms of service has just been like this weird and very welcome response to a whole bunch of questions that i didn't even think that i was asking yet mm-hmm. mm. and that's 
I mean, that's really how I can answer that. And I hope I did because I don't, I mean, because I just, I just, because I have so many different things going on in my head, but those words make the most amount of sense yeah. to, to me. Yeah. Let me so, ask you this. Did I, did I answer your question? <laughs> did I? <laughs> let, let me ask you yeah. a real direct question. Please do. <laughs> what do you know now about working in the industry that you didn't know before you started the podcast? That mental health is real, that the boundaries that you can place for yourself are necessary. I, when I came into the industry, I, I just, I worked a lot because I thought that that was just the thing that you did. I was surrounded by people that, that worked a lot and you find out that that behavior, it breeds a coping mechanism. It breeds, you know, alcoholism. It, it, it breeds drug abuse because you're literally exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> like you're just physically and mentally worn down and listening to, to people express how they place boundaries has been really important for me. I'm not the best at it, but I'm getting there. Yeah. He's getting better. Yes, I am getting I am getting better. I can I, hear you, <laughs> Justin. When people talk about exhaustion as the norm and stress as the status symbol, and it does come up on almost every episode in one way, <laughs> shape, or form. Yeah. Like I hear yeah. you, Justin. I hear you grappling with that. Yeah. Because you are ambitious and you do want to make a difference and you do pride yourself on working hard. But I can hear you like appreciate the law of diminishing return on that. Like it sounds like this podcast has helped you to create some space for yourself. And no matter how long the podcast lasts, like that's going to stay with you forever. You're, you're finding reasons to create margin in your life. And uh, I've been really interested in listening to you sort of like really respond to your guests when they speak on that theme. It's one of my favorite things about your podcast. Chef Naribo, <laughs> tell me, what have you learned over the course of your 10 episodes talking about life in the industry? I know this is going to sound lame, but for me, it is, in fact, mental health because I went to school and I studied human development and family studies. And then I was like, I'm a chop vegetables for a living. And every single kitchen that I walked into, every event space that I would go into, you can tell that people are sort of like on their last leg yeah. every single day. And they're just trying to like get by. Right. And I think that the conversations that we're having now started for me, like two and a half years ago when I started seeing a therapist again and like having someone else question all of the crazy shit that I see as like, this is just normal. And this is how you survive in the industry. And like, we are in an industry where you're not allowed to be soft or, or have like feelings that are beyond anger and frustration. Yeah. 
doing the podcast has taught me that everything that we do in life comes back into play in our current situations. And I never thought at the beginning of meeting Justin. When you were just minding your own business. I was just minding my own business. (laughs) Like I never thought that I would be in this situation where people are like, oh yeah, mental health, it's important. (laughs) Like, and that seems to be like a really nice thing to take away from it, but fixing the individuals in the industry instead of the industry problems. And that's another thing that I've learned is that it's more about getting people to want more for themselves individually that can afford us the eventuality of fixing the larger structural problems. Because if the person at the top of the company is like, yep, we don't sleep, we do a bunch of drugs, and that's how we stay awake 24-7, they're not going to give a shit about changing what's happening below them. Yes, But it's like, if you can get to the individuals along the way, maybe we can make a greater change happen. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. You know what I think about when I listen to your podcast? This always sort of is in the back of my head. I think about how much the tone and content of your conversations would change were it not for this damned pandemic. Like if you were just talking to people like the day after their, you know, 10 hour shift and they got off at three o'clock in the morning, like if they were living their quote unquote normal lives and having to respond to your inquiries. I feel like the tone and content of the responses would be totally different. It's like there's two different like conversations. You know, you talk to someone who's in the military, right? It, you have one conversation when they're in and then you talk mm. to them if they're a year <laughs> out. They're totally different conversations. You talk to people yeah, yeah. who like work on a cruise ship. Totally different conversations when they're doing it than when they've like moved on from that. And it's one of those, the last thing a fish would notice is the water types of situations. Exactly. And y'all are kind of out of water right now by virtue of the global circumstance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I hope desperately for you and for your friends and colleagues that when this pandemic is over, that the lessons that people in the industry have had a chance to think about and meditate on can be applied. I hope that it's not a return back to normal. Like the status Uh quo anti-COVID is not sustainable. And I guess I wonder as people who think seriously about the industry, what do you hope perhaps versus like, what do you expect this pandemic will do to the industry? I hope that the pandemic teaches people that everyone should be valued and accommodated for their work in a livable way. I feel like it was already beginning to become a a topic of conversation before the pandemic, but that's the one thing I want people to take out of this. Like the reason that people aren't returning to work isn't because they don't want to work. They just know that 
they cannot afford to live off of unstable and unsustainable wages. And I know it's like asking for rain in the middle of the desert, but that's what I want. That's what I want to see is like people being able to afford the luxury of going to the dentist. Yeah. For example, (laughs) at the top of my career was making enough money, no benefits, no, no sort of benefits, no time off to like take care of yourself. And now I'm unemployed, uninsured, and I have to figure out how to get a double roof canal in the next two weeks. And that's because it's never been an option for me before to have all of the basic human rights, allegedly, that were supposed to be granted. So yeah, I just want people to make livable wages. How dare you, Nariba, have the audacity. <laughs> I know. God. The temerity. My non-American ideas are coming to light. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. I hope that too. For you and for yours and for all things just. Yes. Justin. Yes. What do you hope perhaps versus what do you expect this pandemic will do to the industry? I'm hopefully expecting <laughs> that that there will be a shift in more transparent coverage of the industry and how these personalities that publications want to put all of their weight behind, these institutions that want to put all of their resources behind, are understanding that that is on the backs of real people. And that in order for us to celebrate the achievements of the industry, we have to be mindful of how we got there in the first place. And, And also providing spaces for those that have felt that their terms of service is to be overlooked, undervalued, and wildly underpaid. Mm-hmm. So what, what I hope is an extension of what Nariba mentioned, but looking at that from really just a coverage perspective, you know, if, if, you, if you want someone to give a shit about your damn birthday, ma'am, then you need to extend that same sort of grace to the stranger who came in at 5 a.m. to start prepping whatever sort of dish that you are enjoying for your night out. Yes. That is the exchange that I am expecting and extremely hopeful towards. You know what, though? I think your hope is not without reason. I think there are dialogues around grace and around empathy that are earnest Mm -hmm. and that did not exist in the same ways and with the same tone prior to the pandemic. I think that one thing this pandemic has taught hopefully enough people is that life is too damn short to be that damn selfish. Yeah. Yeah. And that empathy and grace are the driving forces that bind societies together. Yeah. And that it's so much easier to be empathic and to be graceful than to not be empathic and graceful. Yeah. Like there's just less resistance. 
Oh, it's a choice. Yeah. It takes a lot more energy to be an asshole than it takes to just be a nice person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel, I feel like anytime that I have exhibited asshole behavior, no, it's taken more energy from me than to just be me because I was trying to be an asshole. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted a negative energy placed upon this situation or individual because I ain't perfect. (laughs) Well, as a tried, true and tested asshole myself, (laughs) allow me to tell you that you're obviously right. (laughs) I'm cautiously optimistic that your hopes for the future of the industry can and will be realized. And I know that in my fair city of Chicago, people are beginning to return to restaurants and bars after more than a year of disruption. You've got the mic. Speak to the people. What message do you want them to hear about working in the industry? Well, um... Go ahead, everybody. Rock, paper, scissors? (laughs) No, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I just want people to realize that when they walk into a restaurant, we are not robots. We are not machines. We are not anything other than human beings. And the same way that you walk into a restaurant and you sit down to celebrate your anniversary, your birthday... Uh, a business meeting, whatever, understand that people are curating these experiences for you to have lasting memories. And at the same time, those people are also losing out on birthdays, anniversaries, baby showers, having families, having children, like all of those things are put aside in like a very unceremonious honor to you. So like tip your bartender, tip your server, remember their name. It makes us feel like we're people and we're not just here to like do whatever it is that the customer wants. Because as we've learned after hundreds of years, the customer is not always right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I want people to know that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm your server. I'm not your servant. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I will say that the same sort of expectation that, you know, you feel that you're accessing because you're, you're paying for it. It's less about money and it's more, it's more about compassion and understanding that the dining experience should feel different. The expectations from an establishment are a lot higher because they're looking to essentially win, win you back. You should be mindful of the human cost of the hospitality experience, the realities of, of internal tipping structure, the reality of access to healthcare, the reality of what it actually costs for you to have that memory. And the bare minimum is to financially support that reality, but also to just support through compassion and acknowledgement that someone is providing you 
an escape from your reality while welcoming you into theirs. Mm -hmm. I love that idea. You inspired something in me, Justin, when you said that. Can I be so bold? (laughs) I feel like (laughs) such a tool doing this. But can I be so bold as to answer my own question? Yes. Because something you said, Justin, made me think this. I think about all of my friends who really cherish dining out, who really cherish going to bars and pubs. And they talk so much about how they miss their restaurants and bars and clubs. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they got it quite right. It's just dawning on me right now. They don't miss the pub or the bar or the restaurant. They miss the people <laughs> who made that experience special for them. Mm-hmm. And so what I would want them to know, and perhaps I'm saying this on your behalf, is to bear in mind that what you miss are the people who make those experiences special and treat them the way they deserve to be treated. Yes. That's my thought. And then there's this. I really want to congratulate both of you on what I think is a splendid podcast. Thank you. You all dive deep. You create a space for people to challenge their thoughts. You give your guests a platform that's warm and inviting, but really empowering and challenging. I like you two a lot. Justin, I liked you way back when, when you were a kind (laughs) and congenial and fun kid in my class 20 years ago. (laughs) And I like the two of you together. I think y'all really got something. Thank you. And while I like you two, I really love what you are aspiring to do with your podcast. And I'll link to it and all this stuff. Thank you. Don't worry about that. (laughs) I want to thank you both for what you're doing on your podcast. And I want to thank you for being on Studs. It has been a genuine pleasure. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you a million times. (laughs) (laughs) We're like, we don't know how to do this because we're used to doing a bunch of outro things. (laughs) Like, thanks. (laughs) Please? (laughs) (laughs) Sweet. Thank you. (laughs) But for real. Nariba, we're we're a season finale. Yeah. Yeah. All right, kids. There you have it. That's me savoring every second of conversation with Justin Arnett Graham and Nariba Shepard of the Terms of Service podcast. I've linked to all their socials in the show notes. So wherever in the world you may be, check those two out and definitely tune in to the Terms of Service podcast. So that does it for me and Studs for season five. It is my humble belief that every season of this podcast gets better. I hope that's true. (laughs) That's what I'm working for. It's been a real labor of love, but ultimately it's just been a total pleasure to connect with all my guests. All right, so subscribe and leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, please hop over to patreon.com slash studs and show a little support. 
I'm going to take a couple weeks off and regroup. I'll be thinking intently and intensely about where this project can and should go. And while I'm doing that, I hope that you take care of yourself and your loved ones and that you find some joy in this cold, dark world. <laughs> There's reason for hope and chances to thrive. Grab those chances. I'll look forward to being with you soon. You know, like nature specials with like tiny frogs on them. Yes. And they're all like different colors and stuff. Uh I'm in the middle of a cover up tattoo healing process. And it looks sort of like one of those little frogs. (laughs) (laughs) The skin like is all like gross and bumpy and like wet all the time. Just thought I would share that. Looks like we (laughs) just found our after interview listener bonus for the end of the episode. (laughs) Thanks for sharing, Nariba. You're welcome. Frog lady. Hi, hi, froggy person. Does look like it. All right. I had to change this cord because my computer was saying that it was no longer charging. And I was like, no, no. No, 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 no. no. All right. Everyone feels good? Yep. Cool. Yep, yep. So. Sorry. Yeah. And there goes our second piece of bonus <laughs> material. You have a frog on you and apparently a little bit of frog up in you. That was... Uh, 110%. Man, if you were a prize fighter, we would call you Gaseous Clay. That was quite the quite the rip. I'm proud. Oh, my God. That's a good one. No, Thank you. It, it, it's amazing. It's... Um, I would be confident enough to say, and we would do correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like that's part of your brand, you know? It is. Yeah. It is part of my brand. Yeah. <laughs> all of the women in my family burp. That was not even a loud one, mm-hmm. but we all burp like that. And it came from um, my Chinese grandmother. <laughs> great, well, great grandmother. She burped like that. Her daughters burp like that. My mom burps like that. My sister and I burp like that. And when my brother told me I would never get a man hmm. because I burp like a man uh-huh. I made it my mission to have that not stop me <laughs> well, there we go snaps to that stay yeah. fighting alright <laughs> yes alright y'all are fun this is I, I, I don't deserve this much fun on a Monday night thank <laughs> oh, you oh stop it no thank you